lovers, this is Dr. Candace Nicole with How to Love a Human. You can follow me and the How to Love a Human project on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and HowToLoveAHuman.com, where I welcome your contribution to the conversation. Today, I'm dialoguing with Kenneth, and I appreciate all you lovers out there for taking this journey with me to discover how to love a human. Hey, everyone. Today on How to Love a Human, I am with Dr. Kenneth Tyler. Hey, Kenneth. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right. So. All right. <laughs> how are you feeling? I'm doing pretty good. I'm in a good space. Good. Good, space, good mental space, physical space. It's good stuff. Nice. We were just talking about movies and stuff, and so there's a lot of richness to develop with this interview, I'm hoping. But I'm going to start with my non-researchy question first, mm-hmm. which is, are you feeling human or human as fuck half? Human as fuck. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that I say that is because I, I have to balance the awesomeness of humanity with, you know, some of the tragedy of it. And I, mm. I think I do that as part of my lived experience. You know, I I celebrate me, but I also know that there's me's that mm-hmm. I always have to keep in motion. I always have to work on that I'm just never satisfied with. And I'm cognizant of both of those. Mm-hmm. And that what I do is struggle to make sure that one doesn't, you know, outbalance or overbalance the other. So if it's an awesomeness and a tragedy, what part is the balancing act for you? Like, are you trying to weigh how much tragedy you allow in or weigh how much awesomeness you allow in? The awesomeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to remember that I'm good as I am. Yeah. And... That's good enough, but then I'm always pushing to be better than that best self. It was a post that I even had this morning that as I was running, I was trying to figure out why is this in my space? And in the space of the quote was um, something to the effect of in, in chasing the best possible me, I'm realizing that I'm running past my best self or I could be running past my mm. best self because I'm always looking to become better but I might be missing out on the things that I've always already gotten really good at and I ignore them in pursuit of this best or better possible self and I I have to learn how to not do that I have to learn how to be very good with what I am even while in pursuit of pursuing something that I never thought I could have and so my hashtags Mm -hmm. for it were you know take time to smell the roses but the other hashtag was as you grow them Mm. because I don't want to remove myself from this process of self-betterment, but I don't want to lose myself in this process of self-betterment either. I want to I want to be happy with me and pursuing the best me. I get that. And so a lot of times I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what's the good of me today? Mm-hmm. And it changes day by day. Yeah. 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 I had a moment similar to that. It's so funny you said that I was going hiking mm-hmm. and I realized like, so it's a really uneven terrain and I'm watching my step. I'm putting my feet down. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the sky opens up, light shines in, and leaves start raining mm-hmm. down. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like a moment where I was like, yo, I'm going to miss this if I'm always watching my step. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. This watching the step is like, I'm trying to be dope. I'm trying to be awesome. I'm trying to make sure this mm-hmm. is on point. And the heavens have opened up yeah. around me. Yeah. <laughs> I totally and feel I just, where you're coming from yeah, with that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's real easy to 
omit the reality of God's genius mm -hmm. from your lived experience. It's real easy to miss all the wonderment, you know, of the world and what it has to offer you in pursuit of something that in years will be trivial, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's what I want to make sure I'm not doing. I don't want to lose sight of my 13-year-old or my wife or my three-month-old in pursuit of trying to change people's minds about who and what we are. Mm. At the end of the day, that's important. It'll never be more important than who I get to be to the persons that I love. Wow. And in order to be that for them, I have to still remember the good that's in me. I still already. have to remember what I have to already. Even in pursuit of greatness, I have to remember that I've been great to begin with. And sometimes it's hard to do for me. Mm -hmm. I, tell, I feel where you're coming from with that. And there's this sense of, I don't know if you experienced this, but as we age, we wonder about less things. Academics, I think, we're prone to curiosity, but like we don't engage the sense of wonder. Like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. When I think about how kids feel about bubbles, mm -hmm. <laughs> bubbles, you know, I don't feel enthusiastic about very many things at that yeah. level. And that's bubbles, you yeah. know? Yeah. There's like wonder all around us. And how do you manage the wonder in your child? There's wonder yeah. in yeah. seeing a human being come to life, yeah. you know? I think with age comes a good degree of cynicism every year. And so yeah. that things that were often wondrous are now trivialized mm -hmm. it, and it's and they shouldn't be that way it's just that we have more time to think it took somebody told us that we have to now be critical thinkers mm -hmm. and you're oftentimes not criticizing or critically thinking about a bubble but maybe that's the point of the mm -hmm. bubble to remind you that that isn't the place that you always have to be in or the space that you always have yeah. to be in and that it's a good thing that that bubble exists to remind you not unlike what you saw when you were out hiking mm -hmm. what i thought about when running it's like the sun is rising, mm -hmm. and I'm going to miss it. That sky was dark purple. Now it's turning orange. Now it's turning blue. And there's not a cloud in the sky. Mm -hmm. And so right there, you got physics. You got whatever science All that is. You know, science. <laughs> you know, we're a certain type of science. Yes. You know, not, not that one. But it's like, I can miss that if I'm focused on having to go in and do these leg presses. You know, it's like, or I can say... I need, to, I need to step back and embrace it. Mm -hmm. And I, I struggle trying to make sure that I'm embracing that part because life is a whirlwind that if you don't step off, you'll be lost with it. Mm -hmm. so. That's real. So tell me about you. What are your most salient identities? Who are you? I am a child of God. I am a follower. I doubt God, but that's because I love him. I criticize God. And that's because I love him. I question God, but that's because I love him. I pray to him and I talk to him because I love him. So my identity is grounded very deeply in my relationship with Christ because I don't know anything else. Mm. And it's not to mean that, you know, I grew up in church. I actually didn't get saved until maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. And I didn't grow up in church at all, I think. I can count on one hand the number of times I had been to church in mm -hmm. my lifetime before I, you know, I had gotten saved. But one of the things that promoted this spiritual identity that I have was trying to figure out what this bigger purpose in my life was. And I didn't know what it was. It can't just be publishing papers. It can't even be just raising this 10-year-old boy to the best of my abilities. There has to be something larger. 
and acknowledging what that purpose is. And I don't really know what it is. I know I need help. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, parental figures and adults that have been highly influential in my life, they don't have all the answers. Mm-mm. And so I needed the person or the entity that would give me those answers or help me in my quest for them. And I knew that that person wasn't human. I knew that that entity did not exist on earth as a you know palpable being. Mm-hmm. And so I had to embrace that. I had to accept it so I could accept the help. Gotcha. <laughs> and so, you know, trying to figure out what am I here doing, I had to embrace Christ in order to get answers to it. So chiefly who I am is a, a child of God, a learner of God, a person who wants to become more knowledgeable of who I am as a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I'm also a, a black man, cisgendered, married, heterosexual. Um, I am a father, a husband. My wife Donna's gonna listen, so I didn't mean to rank those. You, know what I'm saying? <laughs> you said married early on. You <laughs> okay, came back, that, so yeah. you doubled up so on it. Double up. On there you like, go. That's the importance level wife, right there. Not that she's coming with you know kids or nothing like that. Not gonna say kids. But um, I am a hey, son. Donna. <laughs> a son and uh, um, a brother. Um, I think I I'm an intellect. Mm-hmm. I I embrace that I I've, I've embraced my identity as you know nerd geek spaz. You know I'm, I'm embracing my athletic identity, and I've done so probably within the past five or six years. I wasn't the athletic type, you know, asthma and resident chubby kid in my family and kind of outgrew that and trying to keep that away. But, you know, for a long time, I didn't have an athletic identity, but I realized that I could do things. I realized Mm -hmm. I was strong. I realized that even though I'm independent and I was largely that because of socialization, because when you're not the sporty kid, you're the kid that usually, you know, has to do things alone. And when you are the nerdy kid, mm-hmm. you find that you often are the kid who's doing things alone you, because what you like to do is largely <laughs> And you, and you like it. <laughs> right. And it's fun, but it's mm-hmm. not entirely accepted. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I learned how to be alone for a very long time, but embrace not only being alone, but who I am as a loner. And that is, you know, and in a life, I love to read. Mm-hmm. I'm a complete bibliophile. I try to clear a book a week just on principle. Yeah. You know, just so I can say at the end of the year, I read 50 books or 40 books. Um, and that all is all part of my, what I would call, intellectual identity. I have an academic identity that has set the tone for my entire life. And now with this, you know, it's, I'm kind of a comic book nerd. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, we've come, you know, great power, it comes great responsibility. <laughs> That's a Spider-Man line. You know, it's kind of like, well... Part of that responsibility for me, given that I have this ability to think critically and deeply about things, is what do I get to do with it? And mm-hmm. so now I want to consider myself a change maker. The issue is, is where do I make the changes at and with whom? Mm. And so now I'm thinking about who I am within this larger power dynamic we call academia. You know, I'm sick of writing papers. I'm sick of doing conferences. I want to create the type of environment where change is embraced Mm -hmm. but with the embracing of that change we can go out and take new places and change those not in sort of this imperialistic sense you know where we're going and colonializing what you used to have and now taking it over rather we are saying here's what you get to think about differently here's how it worked with us here's what you can try on for size Mm -hmm. but that has to be thought about would it be 
decolonizing or would it be something that's not even in that colonial spectrum? Say more. So there's a there's a decolonizing, which is basically dismantling with this whole ivory tower stands mm -hmm. for through your work. So through your action, through your research. And then there are other ways to think about it, too. And I'm wondering, do you see yourself as hoping your work and your purpose does that? Or something different that oh, I no. haven't even thought okay, about. Okay, I, I hear you. No, it's, <laughs> it's total decolonialization. I'm, I'm interested in dismantling systems mm -hmm. because it's very clear that for non-white people, they don't work. Mm -hmm. Or when they work, there's some degree of subjectivity, some degree of emotionality, some degree of something that usually non-white folks have to walk away with that mm -hmm. doesn't end up helping them or facilitating their lives in the end that I want to have people think differently about. You know, I'm an educational psychologist by training and so I often think about myself like what's a nice discipline like Ed Psych doing in the world of whiteness and racism and mm -hmm. privilege and the real question is why haven't you been here? Why haven't you been thinking? Why hasn't your field gone this direction? Yeah. Because well, education is so immersed in the dissemination of whiteness. It's centralized. It's, I mean, it's, it's the like, very reason people get to think what they think, because it's been learned. Mm -hmm. And so there are resources that are reinforcing what has been learned that you have access to, you know, formal and academic and informal mm -hmm. and non-academic, you know, resources. But all of it has an academic component, a cognitive component to it, to which you internalize mm -hmm. your teaching and learning process is ingrained in whiteness. It's saturated with mm -hmm. whiteness. So why aren't we in that? And yeah. so part of me, when I was talking about dismantling systems and educational psychology, by trade, is like I'm looking to do more, being a change agent to get people to think about the role that they play in perpetuating what whiteness is and what it does, and then how to think about themselves differently as an agent of whiteness, mm. and how we get to resituate them now that they know that they are doing what whiteness expects them to do. So as a man with all of your identities as a black, heterosexual, cisgender, married, Christian, child of God, black man, and all of the things that the intellectual, the academic, do you feel like you are an agent of whiteness given that we've all been groomed in this system? Or do you feel like the work that it takes not to be being groomed in this system is already done and you're like where do you find yourself in that i'm an agent of it i i think there's not a person in this country who isn't mm -hmm. the issue is can we recognize our agency that promotes whiteness and then can we situate ourselves differently within it i'm an agent of whiteness simply by reinforcing the scientific method mm -hmm. The way that we think about how to solve problems and what that gets to exclude reinforces mm -hmm. whiteness. You know, there are people who tell you at a personal level, you know, don't get angry, you know, when you're in a fight. Because mm -hmm. when you're angry, you don't think. It's like we are born with emotional intelligence. Yeah. And so then how I feel about something is actually useful it's to me. It's important data <laughs> in a situation. But in our country, in our world, using scientific method that promotes whiteness, not only is it not data, but it's just irresponsible mm. to reinforce emotionality or subjectivity as part of the scientific process when, in essence, 
is probably the foundation for why we do the work in the first Absolutely. place. What we felt, you know, as human beings are the reasons that now we have these social sciences that we can explore the human mind, human body, and those sorts of things. It's how we felt. So why do you think there's this themed objectivity? Because I don't even believe in the concept of objectivity anymore, and that's why I do qualitative research. I just, I'm going to say what my objectivity is not. (laughs) I'm going to put my subjectivities out there. And there's emotion work in this research. Mm -hmm. I care about it. I have thoughts, feelings, attachments to it like Mm -hmm. that's why do you think there is this pretending that objectivity is the hallmark of science i think people are afraid to know their emotional selves Hmm. i think more about that i think that identity in this world has to omit vulnerability and a display of vulnerability within the realm of whiteness is weakness and Mm -hmm. weakness is not to be accepted it's to be challenged it's to be destroyed demolished eradicated but challenged destroyed demolished and that's powerful well because that's the whole point i think whiteness Mm -hmm. tries to display this idea that there's strength in its presentation so that no form of weakness whatsoever, even in the form of apology, even in the form of acknowledgement of wrongdoing, when something's blatantly obvious, it still has to rise above that because any sign of whiteness disruption by way of apology is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And it can't exist in that capacity. And because people in the creation of whiteness have decided that weakness can be displayed in the form of emotionality, we have to make sure that the emotions displayed are not sadness. Hmm. Not even anger. Mm -hmm. Because anger is a feeling. So you have to smile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even when you are condemning, you have to say that things are are going to look like, or rather you have to give off this, you know, countenance that things are fine, when in actuality you know that you are ruining people's lives and you personally have uh, sort of a, I don't want to say contrived feeling about it, but because I, I think people deep down are emotional beings, mm-hmm. but the fact that you have to reinforce whiteness, you get to feel how you want to feel about ruining people's lives, but you can't show it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is what whiteness gets to do, and you can't be subjective because oftentimes you are linked to weakness in that capacity, and people. And this world don't really want to show that. The most famous sport in this country is football, where people get hurt, they lose their lives, mm-hmm. not on the field necessarily, but brain. over time. Power for sure. You know, over this, you know, gladder, gladiator type sport. But it's the most celebrated sport. Why? Because they see those signs of strength in opposition to what could be, which is the weakness. That's what they get to do. And I think that that's what people are afraid of. What troubles me in that is I wonder where demonstrations of strength and people with marginalization get cast as weakness too, or get cast as problematic. Because if strength and power are the defining, not defining, but are the important constructs in whiteness, then what happens when you as a black man demonstrate strength or power? You know what I mean? How how is that recast then as a problem, as hypermasculinity or as 
rape or as you know any other reason why black men might have been lynched in the world well in this realm of whiteness that sign of power is something that they white persons and what the whiteness realm gets to tell them that's something that they should be fearful of but they won't have to be fearful of it so long as i'm contained and my power therefore is contained and so we have to think about not necessarily the fear that they have with the demonstration of my power, but what they get to do about that exhibition of my power, which is contain it. Mm -hmm. So they don't have the fear as much as they should. Why? Because they have powers that get to contain me. Mm -hmm. And so that strength that I have gets to be truncated. It's shortchanged. Mm -hmm. It's limited in its exhibition. Why? Because it exists within a realm that is purposely set to dismantle that power to limit its mm -hmm. exhibition by persons of color or non-whites like like black men so when i do it it has to be condemned it's the colin kaepernick scenario mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. all i'm doing is kneeling bro you shouldn't be doing mm -hmm. that you are not a patriot it removes power mm -hmm. stripping him as a, his identity as an american removes his power his credibility but all he was doing was very consistent with what peaceful protests mm -hmm. should do, which is what they said ought to be done. Mm -hmm. But you know what happened? Even in that peaceful protest, there's a stripping of that power. Why? Because there's a black person with an Afro doing it. Mm. And so, yeah, they it gets to be contained. And I, that's, I'm pretty sure this whole talk ain't about whiteness. And no, I but I mean, it's about, important to this I, I conversation. Think I think that's how we, we have to realize we are situated within we are situated within this larger entity of what whiteness is as a construct and as a lived reality and who we are as black persons within that construct and who we are are limited in power who we are are limited in our ability and or even our perception of being objective what we are subjected rather to what are the norms of operation when it comes to how to live your best life and even when we adopt those rules, there's certain things that we can't do because of the yep. color of our skin. Absolutely. And so whiteness ultimately never works for us. The problem is, is that we've not sold it as whiteness. We've sold it rather as racism. Professionalism. <laughs> we, we've, we've removed all of our ills from their source, mm -hmm. which is whiteness. We've said that we got this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem. This ain't even just black people, just mm -hmm. people in general. Not really realizing that 99% of those problems can be linked to this idea that persons in power, white, heterosexual, property males, just to start, mm -hmm. said that this is the tone for what would be the rest of our existence. Mm -hmm. And so there are laws created, there are power structures enacted, there are activities and actions taken against persons of color and white persons mm -hmm. for the purpose of reinforcing or establishing and reinforcing whiteness. And it sets the tone for how I live. So even when I talked earlier about having to remember that I'm great, I have to remember that within a context of whiteness that expects me not to be. Mm. Especially as a black, the only black male in this department and have been since the department since the existed. Department. Since the department. Right. Mm -hmm. I know that there's an unwritten expectation that I may not know as much as I know it. So that means that in these sessions, you know, committee meetings or faculty, I have to be better than expected. Mm. Because I operate in a system of whiteness that says the lowest expectation might come to you. Mm -hmm. You know, even with, you know, 
and understanding that, you know, historically and socially, black women have oftentimes been at the lowest of the totem pole. When in education, however, I think there's been some degree of advancement that black women have enjoyed, at least, you know, not as much as black men have. And so when we think about, you know, the four people that are in the room, I think it's very clear that the lowest expectations might be held for me. And what does it mean if that's real for you? Because what I keep coming up against is what can it be okay if we aren't the absolute best person in the room all the time you know i I, I want to embrace that yeah and that's the part that i have trouble with like i'll say in the beginning because i understand that i'm not i understand Mm -hmm. that at a personal level and the people who know me best that i disclose this type of stuff to they know that i'm trying to perfect myself because i acknowledge that i'm very far from it so is it okay for me? Yeah, but that's sort of the I versus mm-hmm. me persona. And so mm-hmm. in my personal world, I think that I can do well with it. But I exist in that world literally in the shower, or literally yeah. in my household where I trust the individuals you know, with this information about me. Of course I'm fallible. But out here, when I'm fallible, it's part of an expectation. It's part of a system of beliefs that predate me, that exist prior to my existence. And meeting that, you know, it's a classic Claude Steele work, mm-hmm. but it's a lived experience mm-hmm. for me. You know, it's meeting the stereotype, but also acknowledging that there's another stereotype about another group of people that's actually positive, And that's mm-hmm. the part that we don't focus on mm-hmm. all the time. So to answer your question, yeah, it's okay. It's just usually contextualized. Yeah. <laughs> it's situated where it's actually okay. Right. And that builds on, for me, something. So you're the third black man that I've interviewed all married, all having like a home space where it's like, and this is the place right here when I walk in these doors, then I'm human. You know what I mean? Then I feel loved. Then I feel safe. And I don't know if safe is even the word, like, but then I feel <laughs> welcome. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like my, my humanness th- can be express fullest mm-hmm. As, in that space. Yeah, absolutely. What about some of the other identities that you didn't make mention of? So we talked about um, spirituality and religion and race and gender, um, sexual orientation, marital status. What about um, social class? What about ability status? Things like that. How, tell me about those. Um. Do you want me to give you a narrative on how I got to be in this particular social class or my self-perception of my ability? Or do you want me to say what I think they are? I'm just trying to make sure I I understand the question. I think both could happen. So sometimes it's this is my SES of origin Mm -hmm. and it no matter what. SES I've transitioned to this has framed my understanding of the world and then sometimes it's like this is where I am now and I can look reflectively on what that was but this is where I am now it really depends on what it feels most salient for you okay so in answering that question going with the SES but even the the ability identity both of them were you know going back to you know regressing a bit back to my childhood Mm -hmm. you know it's Sigmund Freud child's father and man so what happened then sets the tone for the identities I adopt now and with that said, you know, I've been saying a lot lately that, you know, I, I've stopped learning how to adopt the King's English. And for me, that means I've 
for some reason, I, I'm not using as many big words as I used to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before we got here in 2005 and six, I read, you know, the American Dictionary and I wrote out two to three word meanings of words that I did not know. Mm-hmm. And I printed it out and I had it plastered all over my file cabinets. And when I needed a word, I would look to that. You know, yeah. I just want to read the dictionary because I'm a nerd going yeah. back to the academic identity. But I wanted to enhance how I express myself and it was largely you know in a written context and so what I mean now is that I no longer adopt the King's English as I used to is that you know I have parents who are high school you know graduates and you know they were not college educated you know I was the first person to go college mm-hmm. and graduate school and obviously PhD and that sort of thing and so what was important to me then as now is my ability to articulate the importance of the things that I think about to persons who don't read as I do or people mm. who aren't as familiar with terminology or lingo as I am, you know, is to take the social sciences and to make it plain. You know, I used to always say to, you know, my folks, everybody can be a doctor because you are the expert of your own personal mm-hmm. experience. And oftentimes that's more valuable than anything that, you know, the literature gets to say. And so, you know what, I'm going to focus on you and not necessarily the literature, but that also means that I have to hear you and I have to speak to you in a way that you actually get and Mm -hmm. are able to receive. And so is that a function of you being the first or do you think had you not been the first to go to college, the first to get a graduate degree, the first to get a Ph.D., whether you would have been committed to that code switch? Probably because I was the first. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the conversations that I wanted to have, I had to learn how to have them. Mm-hmm. And if everybody was college educated in my family, that I wouldn't have to learn how to have them. It'd be a natural scenario for me to go in, feel out where people are topic wise and just, you know, introduce myself and my stance, mm-hmm. you know, into a conversation or discourse on this topic. But, you know, now and it's no knock to the people that I love, but it's like I need to take what it is I know how I think about it and make sure that it can be embraced by folks that don't talk the same way I do Mm -hmm. or think as intricately, you know, the way that I do about these things. You know, I feel like my mind is going, you know, a thousand miles a minute and I don't want that to disrupt the thought processes of somebody who might be getting into the topic, Mm -hmm. not at the same rate that I am or. I don't want them to tune out because I use a word that they never heard before. So that meant for me that I'm just not going to use those words. In Got fact, it. it's better for me to use the words and still have the stance, still maintain the perspective, mm-hmm. but do so in a manner that fits both contexts. One that's academic for me, but also one that's just home and very personal that I've embraced. Because being able to talk to those persons is still very important to mm-hmm. me. It's still relevant to me. If I lose that, then you're talking about my centering being off Mm -hmm. and I don't need that because I know that I don't have a center in the world that I'm in. Got it. I have to keep my center here, but that also means that my communication needs to be more than clear. There's some people who distance, who use the language in the way you described earlier to distance as far as possible from their early life experience or from people whose identities are more marginalized based on lack of education. And it seems for me that, Rather than using it as a distancing mechanism, you were trying to reach something else so you could have conversations in another space. And now you're trying to make sure you're kind of like, 
what is this like a pinwheel you know where you're like i'm i'm centered in all of these conversations these discourses these ways of being and i want to be equally close to all of them so that i can communicate this message everywhere i am yeah so who i am in the center you know mm -hmm. I, I want my outreach to be equidistant i want to have the same level of outreach to the persons that i know and love and the persons that are just familiar with those persons mm -hmm. and therefore I'm familiar, you know, by default. But also that same distance occurs for people in academia. I want to be able to have the same type of conversation in different ways with multiple people and multiple groups. Why? Because that broadens who I get to be mm -hmm. as an intellect. That sets mm -hmm. the tone for not only the types of conversations I get to have, but with whom I get to have them and mm -hmm. what they actually mean. You know, the persons that you describe, I think there's a dismissal of the intellectual capital within those groups. Mm. Their ability to contribute to your understanding is minimized if you're saying there's nothing that I can get from a less educated person mm. or a less schooled mm -hmm. person. I think the opposite. If you have a wealth of knowledge, it becomes your responsibility to make sure that you are not taking or extracting, but rather opening yourself up to multiple forms of in information, of intellect, because that broadens you. And it's not to say that you're sponging off those individuals, but it does give you an opportunity to not limit yourself mm -hmm. to the type of intellect you think is more important, which I think also s serves, you know, a whiteness agenda. Yeah. You know, you have to be educated in this country to be somebody. Mm -hmm. No. You know, one of the most important people on this, you know, in this building, you know, I just found out died two days ago, you know, Fred, who was a custodian here, you know, and Fred would just come by and pick up the train and would talk to me, mm -hmm. you know, this black man, you know, elder black man, a young black man. And I could tell in his conversations, like, you know, he was just proud mm -hmm. that it was another black dude yeah. on this floor. And so when he knocked on my door, I just stopped what I'm doing. We just rapped. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Just, you know, nothing familiar. Maysville, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm from Chicago. It's like, but that familiarity of who we were identity-wise, it just set the tone for, you know, me embracing what it was. And it reminded me of where I came from. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, my dad, you know, picked up trash too. My mom drew blood, you know, and mm -hmm. still draws blood. You know, my dad factory line 35 years. But I still want to talk to them. I still yeah. want to be familiar to them. And I still want them to teach me stuff, mm -hmm. but I got to be open to it. Absolutely. And to be open to it, you can't lose yourself in the pursuit of strengthening your intellectual identity based on a specific standard of what intelligence is. Right. And part of that means that you have to rethink what strengthening your academic or intellectual identity is. Mm -hmm. That might mean that you have to be willing to embrace this form of intellect that doesn't look like this form absolutely because it's still there it's just communication patterns yeah. are different it's just language is different it's just expression is different but we're all observers of the world mm -hmm. and we're all making up our minds about who we are in that world and i think that's information that can inform my world my world view and what i do in the world yeah if i cut it off then i'm actually losing out yeah so we're switching yeah. building on this idea then of who you are, what you hope to give to the world, and what you hope to receive from the world. What does love mean to you? You started off on this question with some force. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> no. Did you? You did? No. Nope. Oh, okay. I must have paid more attention to it because I was like, I don't have an answer. <laughs> and I still don't. Um, love to me is... 
an unrelenting ability to give. It's giving. It's it's a it's it's almost a need to have persons receive what you have to offer. You know, and it's not unlike what my God does. You know, he's always pushing to be involved in your life. And one of the things I learned, you know, from my pastor and, you know, the word, you know, we read the Bible all last year is that, you know, God is wanting to be there in the little things. Mm. You know, we, we think about, I got to get this promotion. I got to be, God wants to be there when you burn your finger out of your shirt Mm -hmm. for the interview for that promotion Mm -hmm. too. You know, he wants you. It's not to say that God is asking you to do everything. God, you know, let me open this door correctly. Let me walk down these steps right. But if he's there all the time, then we should be asking consistently for his presence all Mm -hmm. the time. And that's what I had to learn to do. You know, we think, I think of, I used to think of God as sort of a big ticket item guy, you know, Mm -hmm. help me out on this real big thing. You know, when I first started here, you know, right before I would teach classes, I would go into the little corner of my office. I would kneel down and I would pray. Yeah. It's like, you know, God, give me the words, you know, that I need to use to convey to these students, you know, my knowledge and all of that. And, you know, doing it within this context, you know, I I really felt like I needed help Mm -hmm. in communicating my intellect, my genius, what it is that I knew. Because I just, I didn't feel comfortable or capable of doing it on my own. But I also think that... What was the question again? I'm sorry, I just saw my I'm so sorry. <laughs> what does love mean to but, you? But if if I'm not able to give in the way that our God gives to us, then I think I'm at a loss. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm not in a position to really know what love is because I'm, I think that's what we're put here for, for service, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. much like, you know, Jesus wasn't. Don't get this interview twisted. I'm not biblical. I'm not a biblical scholar. I do not study the Bible. I just know that when I think about these major concepts that you're bringing up, like love, you know, God tends to be the thing that I think about the mm-hmm. most. I don't want this to be, you know, sermonizing or something like that. But I, just I feel like I just be you. Yeah. And, and, and so mm-hmm. this is me. And, you know, I, I don't often talk about it because, you know, there are times where I don't know where my spiritual identity, you know, gets to sit and who mm-hmm. gets to sit in here. So my me is one that has God and his example of love as the center for what my example of love gets to be. And it's always giving. Mm-hmm. And just in the sense that what I'm doing, I'm doing for the benefit of others, even without them asking. So, you know, I, I want to stay in good shape. Why? Because you got 13-year-old and now you got three-month-old. Mm-hmm. And I want to see them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to... I want to be there, yeah. you know, in every capacity. And I, I don't want to lose my opportunity to be there, to be there with my wife even because of poor choices that I made. Mm. Because if I do that, then I'm not actually giving to them. And if I don't give to them, then I'm not providing love. I'm not being a person who knows love. I'm mm. not being the God that I think exists within me who gotcha. gives himself. So I... My definition of love is just never giving up on the opportunity to give, never yeah. feeling like you have, that there's never an opportunity where you can't give. What does giving look like? Because there's so many ways to give. Are you giving from what you have to offer or are you striving to shut yourself maybe in ways to give? 
what you don't really feel like is your strength, but might be what the person mm -hmm. needs. What does giving mean? Like giving the best you you can and being content with that. Or, yeah. you know? it's, it's the first one. Uh-huh. Because with giving, I have, I've learned, you know, sometimes a hard way that you can't give more than what you have to give. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are times where I had to remember not to go overboard because when I do, it costs. It costs your ability to give foremost. Like, mm. in spreading yourself thin, now you've given less than what you could have, which means that you didn't give much. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't give much, you didn't love as much. And so I'm like, I'm going to concentrate on three or four areas, but all of who I am is going into those areas, and that's pretty much it. Got it. Because I'm going to do more to make myself better as a giver in those three or four areas, but that's pretty much it. Now, within those areas, you said the question was, how, what does the giving look like? Mm -hmm. it's, it's time, it's information, it's just presence. Mm -hmm. It's my ability to to listen, to advise, to assist, you know, you know, sort of you know, manual ways, like homework yeah. or whatever, something like that. But mostly it's to field, to field questions, to mm -hmm. field perspective, and to offer personal but also, you know, intellectual insights into what it is that people may be going through. Because without that, then I'm, I don't feel like I'm in a position to say that I love you. Mm -hmm. If I love you but there's no service to you, then I can't say that I, I love you. Okay. You know, I, I, so, can, I can use the words. But it's not... But, you know, love it for me is, you know, in terms of how I like to express it is in terms of the acts of service. When I Got love it. you, there are going to be things done and demonstrated that are ongoing, that are not asked for, that do not require, it's good when you get it, thank mm -hmm. you, but mm -hmm. aren't doing, are being done rather for the purpose of acknowledgement. Gotcha. They're done because... I have to do it because I want to feel good about what I've provided. And I know that has to be ongoing with the people that I love. So it's kind mm -hmm. of a never-ending thing. <laughs> do you feel like that's gendered? That the way you understand love is a function of manhood? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I got that a lot from my dad. Um, my parents have been married for 44 years. And he was, wow. he's Such large. A time. Yeah, they're human. And I'm learning that as we all are getting older mm -hmm. and in their humanness, there are things that they do that I wouldn't do and the things that I do that they wouldn't do, but it's all part of, you know, our family dynamic and loving each other anyway becomes the rule of the day. Mm -hmm. And so with that, one thing that I learned about what love is in terms of my personal definition of service is through watching my parents, you know, especially my dad. Mm -hmm. So when you argue if it's gendered, I, this definition for me, yeah, I, I, I'm stealing it from my dad because that's how love was demonstrated to us. You mm -hmm. know, it's rarely, they just came up two weekends ago off of a whim, like literally 930 knock at my door. Like what the hell? AM or PM? PM. <laughs> it's like it was my dad's birthday he turned 62 and so it was kind of like Saturday night <laughs> but at the same time it's like his family so he's come on by I, I, I wasn't entire, 
I'm a person that likes to prep mm-hmm. way ahead. Like, mm-hmm. you surprise. I've been telling them since I was nine, I don't like surprises. <laughs> Reebok high top gym shoe issues. Like, my mom, I got in trouble for not liking these shoes that were black or white soles, and I hated white soles then. And it was a surprise, and I got in trouble for not liking the shoes. And because of that, I took a Sharpie you and colored them in. Yeah. It's like, what'd you do that to those perfect shoes for? I was like, because I don't like them. It's like, why don't you like them? It's like, I don't like surprises. Mm-hmm. Ever since then, I was like, don't surprise me with nothing. Here they come. <laughs> On there, right? But with that, it's like, there was a moment there where it's just like, I still have to give. I still mm-hmm. have to show. I mm-hmm. Me carrying this for the whole weekend is not going to be healthy for anybody. Mm-hmm. So I still have to give and show the love as had been shown to me across, you know, I'll be 42 in the summer. It's like, I... I've been shown that consistent pattern of love, mm-hmm. that consistent pattern of service, you know, throughout my life with them in Chicago until I went, you know, to Howard and then here. And it's like, I have to reciprocate that yeah. no matter how I feel, because that's what love is. Mm-hmm. It's still giving, even yeah. when you're angry. When your feelings are in it, yeah. the, the process of giving, the act of giving has yeah. to still show up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, my dad, you know, he, and it was weird because, you know, it's like, y'all ain't calling nothing. And my dad was the one telling my mom, I was like, we need to text Kenny. You know, he don't like surprises. Mm-hmm. Kenny. He's like, and they didn't. And so my mom was like, oh, you'll be fine, <laughs> But so my dad, you know, I'm over at the refrigerator making breakfast. He's like, did I tell you that I love you? It's like, big old hug and everything. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, it kind of, it felt good because yeah. it's like, he doesn't often verbalize it. You know, that. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I lost my brother, you know, yeah. last summer or something like that. And so I don't know if he's turning 66 and he's in the bottom. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was. But like in that moment that he verbalized and he yeah. gave him a big hug, it's like in addition to the service, it's like, you know, the acknowledgement of the, the word and the sentiment verbally yeah. was also really good. But my example was for a long time, it's like do, do, do. Got it. Know, provide service, provide service. Now I'm the type of that will say it every day and provide a service. And because of that, I think for me, it's gendered. I think that's what men do when mm-hmm. they love. You know, and, and again, the example is, you know, Christ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he was an idol, you know. I, I <laughs> absolutely not. It's like so. all these acts I got for oh, y'all yeah. before yeah. I go. But you got it from the simplest <laughs> to the most mundane mm-hmm. to the most intricate. Like, I got Here's all some wine for you. Yeah. <laughs> you want that? Got it. You, you know, because it's service. And it's like, it's meaningless to me. Mm-hmm. But to you, it might mean the world. Mm-hmm. So if I have the opportunity to provide that, it's easy. And that's that's how I see love. You know, I think it's when you embrace the definition of it, which is an act of giving yourself what in whatever capacity and realize that that's kind of the purpose of being here. You know, it's providing to others, serving others. And I think it's easy to do. I think we let things interrupt that. Yeah. I think we let, you know stereotypical societal definitions of masculinity and manhood get in the way of that you know you know boys shouldn't cry boys are the ones that need to cry more so than women why because y'all say they can't cry (laughs) and so their ability to to deal with psychological and emotional you know intellectual cognitive any issue is already predetermined so when do they get to express Mm -hmm. and then when they do did something bad happen? And why? Because we said you couldn't act that mm-hmm. way. So, you know, I, I got a 13-year-old, and I was just like, boy, I was like, dude, 
crowd there with me. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to feel that. You know, I'm not a crier. I don't cry in front of him very often. I usually cry by myself when it's time to cry. But with you, my children, who you are as an emotional being, I want you to know that you are free to do that. There is no definition on earth that will keep you from being the best possible you. And as yeah. your dad, you got license to do that. You got cuss, cuss. You got whatever. Because, <laughs> get it out. Because I, the goal is to get it out. Mm-hmm. You know, we can talk about linguistics and language later on, but if you are holding something mm-hmm. toxic, then whatever language you use won't be entirely beneficial to you because you're holding it in. Or worse, you won't use language at all when it comes to self-expression. But I think it's profound that you said... You know, I choose to express my emotions in this capacity, but I'm trying to create an environment where my son gets to feel wherever he feels and whenever he feels. Do you feel like it's because of the constrictions on masculinity that you were socialized into privacy in your emotions? Or is it just you as a loner, as a person who's, you know? It's mostly me, but it's also... It's, it's, it's also conditional, so I, I didn't I don't get those messages from my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents are the ones that give, you know, my brothers and I, my sister an opportunity to emote and self-express or whatever. But, you know, as a child growing up in Chicago, you know, you're not around your parents all the mm-hmm. time. You got school, and then you got after school, and when you see your parents, it's dinner time and it's bedtime, right? Mm-hmm. And so the bulk of the socialization, especially with school is in session yep. and even when it isn't mm-hmm. it's not around adults and so you get around folks who have been socialized with alternative messages of masculinity but then when something hurts your feelings the the expression that you get to have in that moment gets to be reduced mm. or not expressed at all and so becoming a loner wasn't because of who I was within my parental context but rather in my social context. Mm-hmm. It's like, and so, yeah, it's like, but then you also, because it, it's weird, it's like, because these folks are your friends, you don't want to go, what are you talking about me, blah, blah, blah. Because they is usually cousins, yeah. or, you know, friends of cousins or whatever. So what you do, you go home, tell mommy and daddy, you ain't hanging with them no more. Mm-hmm. Because, but you want to, because you still want that social acceptance. And so for me, it was like, go and cry it out in the bathroom or closet, get it out the way, move on. Got it. And so, me, you know, being comfortable with, you know, my personal space and being alone wasn't sort of this, you know, traumatic experience or anything. I, I gravitated towards it for a lot of reasons. But in those alone moments, I think I found my truest me. You know, mm. I found where I could think about things, you know, yeah. I'm psychoanalyzing people or <laughs> talking about me and why they do that because they mama blah 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 mm-hmm. and it's weird because you can't give that back because you're not in that space to do it I wasn't that cool you know kind yeah. of kid and it's very cool now that my 13 year old is total opposite of me you know he has the same type of you know academic identity but he's a total jock and cool mm-hmm. kid and everything and it's can dance you can get away with stuff, stuff yeah. that you couldn't get away and I'm sitting there like I love that about him and so he's opposite in terms of finding that personal space Mm -hmm. 
you know, he has all the personal space he could have. You know, he's growing up in a you know single household where he just got a sister, got his own bedroom, mm-hmm. bathroom, all that kind of stuff. Me with one bathroom and three bedrooms, mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> everybody six sharing. people. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you got me, but I love that he's opposite of me now because for a long time I didn't recognize, and this is you know kind of cathartic for me. I'm mm-hmm. sitting here telling you, like, you know, I had to embrace my aloneness. And I thought it was a bad thing for a long time. Mm. So, you know, it's bad that I don't want to be social. It's bad that, you know, I'm not comfortable in social spaces. Because extroversion is the norm. Like, people ex- are like, something's wrong with you. Yeah. You don't want to be around you. Know, and, and I feel mm-hmm. that. You know, even here, it's like, I'm not hanging out with y'all. I, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. I want to go. And it's not because I fear being in those spaces. Because I know how to perform in those yeah. spaces. I just don't want to do that. Yeah. I want my truest me to be expressed and that oftentimes might be as soon as I get home I'm kicking off the Jordans and I'm hanging on a couch and I'm turning on ridiculousness on MTV mm-hmm. for a good half an hour and you know talking with you know and cooking and all that just just that meanness mm-hmm. it's just got to be there well what would it be like if the world loved you wow I think there'd be more honesty Mm, honesty I think there'd be an opportunity to people to self-embrace because they wouldn't have to worry about being ostracized or you know social rejection I think if people knew my perspective knew me and understood it and wanted to change the world or have it reflected in a lot of the world around them people would be more upfront I learned a long time ago that lying don't get me anywhere. So yeah. I stopped lying. I just, <laughs> it's like, lying hurts people. You always got to backtrack and mm-hmm. remember stuff that ain't true. And that's just way harder to do, especially as time goes on. People never forget the stories that you lying about. So you always got to keep track. And I'm just like, I'm going to tell the truth whether it hurts people or not. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, I have to be able to sleep comfortably. I have to be able to acknowledge that I did the right thing. But oftentimes I've learned, including me, I've learned to lie and do the wrong things because there's this lack of self-acceptance. There's Mm -hmm. people who are weird people like me aren't really accepted people in the world. And therefore, they have to lie to themselves. They have to lie to other people. Does it start with one or the other? Lying to yourself or lying to other people? It's lying to the others. It's it's, it's not... I don't think we lie to ourselves. I, I lie in the sense that we don't give our truest selves to people. I don't Got necessarily it. call that a lie, but there are things that we withhold from mm-hmm. folk. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily outright deceit, but in some cases that's true too. Yeah. You do this? No, I don't. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you just like, I'm telling mm-hmm. about it. Right, but a lot of that is because, you know, honesty isn't fully appreciated, I think. If we could be honest in terms of just our ability to accept consequences, just in terms of our Man. ability to be accepted. I think the world would be a better place. It's like, and I think that's what's going on now. What we have now is an inability to pe- for people to accept. There are things that are being legislated. That's it, right? <laughs> <laughs> or you know what I'm saying? That that have nothing to do with the person's passing legislation. Not even a little bit. But they want to make their criteria for what's normal, what's right, the lived realities of people who are othered. And all I'm saying is, be honest. Let those persons be honest. And you don't even have to breathe the same air. 
just give them an opportunity to be their truest selves. What I find, though, I was just advocating on the Hill. The legislation isn't what their lived experience is either. <laughs> Go ask a Catholic They want to lie. <laughs> they want to cheat. They want to mm-hmm. steal. They just don't want other people to do it to them. Right. And so they get to be above the law mm-hmm. and create law for everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, so even in being forthright, you know, uh, quotation marks and honest and above board, you still backhanded. You mm-hmm. still under the table. You just don't want anybody else to do it. And part of that is just an inability to be honest. We started saying things like, oh, family values are important. And marriage is this. And you have several mistresses and misters. Several. Mm-hmm. You know, like Across the board. that's who you go see when you go to the hill. Right. If Grinder was like a gay sex app mm-hmm. says, you can't come see us unless you start getting it right on the hill. You know, good and well, <laughs> family values <laughs> is not a, we're, what you're we're really gonna walk about. Back that piece of legislation, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, send it back to mm-hmm. you know the house, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's like so. They're, those persons, they have in their own issues with honesty. And mm-hmm. honesty isn't, you know, a self-oriented type of construct. Honesty only works when you do it with other people. Mm-hmm. And therefore, other people have to learn to be accepting of what your truth is. And when that acceptance occurs, that's when you find yourself being more comfortable being honest. But that self-acceptance has to occur, but it oftentimes does. But honesty doesn't follow, meaning there's not... There aren't as many people who are willing to accept you because they don't want to be honest about what they're willing to accept. I don't know if I'm making as much sense as I did five minutes ago about this topic, so I feel like I ought to shut up. But <laughs> what honestly, you, you asked me, how would the world look? I, you know, if it was centered around my idea, and I, I think there you've would just be more truth. You've got honesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know that understanding your truth is one thing, but having others accept it. You know, so long as there's no harm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I love to kill people. We don't want you. <laughs> but if, if you are the individual who is saying, I have this alternative lifestyle, I have this alternative mode of thinking or a way of thinking that doesn't fit the norm, that isn't status quo, then is it doing harm? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then let's talk. Let's seriously talk yeah. about that because there's an appreciation of life that I get to have by talking with you, a person who has a different worldview of what life is in the first place. If I never talk to you, and moreover, I condemn you because of your lifestyle and the worldview that drives it, then again, I am robbed. And what if it's not even your lifestyle? What if it's just because you're black? Yeah. You know, I'm just condemned. We're living the exact same lifestyle. You know, you have a PhD, I have a PhD. I do this work, you do this work. But... You should be condemned by birth. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how do we... I don't know. Yeah, I, I, that's, I, you bring up an interesting point because <laughs> my examples were, you know, when I, in my head I'm thinking LGBTQ populations mm-hmm. and ableism, you know, because I had a, a brother with special needs. And, but blackness is a focal point. Mm-hmm. This is, and I, I think, you know, that is the epitome of the human experience to me. It's like, you know... Everything that <clears throat> could go wrong oftentimes does go wrong, 
when you are a person of color because the expectation is that it will. Mm, Murphy's, it, is that Murphy's Law? Yeah. What can happen is sure, or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, we, we, it's, 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 it's <laughs> like, and that, but that's what I'm saying. It's like we, that becomes, that expectation now becomes a reality for us in some ways that we're either fighting against or living and operating within. Mm. But it never goes away. And so when you find the ability to love, when you find the ability to be human, when you find the ability to embrace, when you learn how to live with an apology that you never received, that you know good and darn well you should have, that's that's the epitome of love to mm-hmm. me because it and that's the black experience to me, which I think is equated with love because it's like it's it's rooted in its imperfections, mm-hmm. but we still beautiful, we mm-hmm. still move in this thing, we still struggle and progress and become greatness yep. in the process. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, how do you not acknowledge what we do here? How do you not acknowledge, you know? How do you not equate blackness with love? You know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore, Doctor. <laughs> no, I think what what it builds I'm on for me is what now. we. T- it's rich because what we talked about before we even started with books and stuff like that. It's like this idea of blackness as love and our experience as embodying love can be written and produced and put out into the world. Mm-hmm. And there's so many other ideas about what love is. There's so many other concepts of it that it just gets swallowed up. It doesn't get the recognition. I don't think that's by chance. I think some of that is intentional. Because if this gets to be the defining power, like if you get to define love, if you get to define what this experience is, and I'm not living in it as a person in power, I can crush you. Yeah. I can make you go away. I can ignore you at a very basic, like, nice level, Mm -hmm. or I can destroy you, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what makes it an interesting concept for me, that if we know we're love, if we know we're doing love, and people aren't recognizing that, Mm -hmm. there's some intention behind that, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. What identities in others do you sometimes struggle to love? Um, what, was, what was this smile about? Because I'm taking up too much time <laughs> as it's recorded. I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a panacea and I'm not the poster boy for tolerance. None of us that are. That's why I asked this question. <laughs> but I'm also having problems trying to identify the identities of, of individuals that I struggle to love and <laughs> I don't know how to name them like mm-hmm. <laughs> Trump supporter I don't mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't mean know that's a good place goes, to start like, yeah I have trouble with people who for the sake of bureaucracy will look to put in power persons and now cabinets who willfully condemn persons to the point where laws are made about their abilities to live, to Mm -hmm. function. I don't know how one could be so callous and lack that degree of conscience 
And, well, I do know the answer is privilege. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a certain degree of just, just blatant arrogance that I think comes with that. Mm -hmm. That you, as this person, has a right to contribute to the dismantling, the, the literal displacement of persons and their livelihood. And you champion that. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time, I don't have a hard time, I don't accept it, but that also means that I don't associate with it. Mm -hmm. So my Facebook, you know, friends, 170, mm -hmm. and all of them, none of them Trump supporters. Why? Yeah. Because I need to spend more time focusing on how to get us to fully embrace us in the fight against them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I need to necessarily know the intricacies of their positioning. I know the on the outset what it might mean. And I'm even talking about coal families and, you know, people that were hit hard by the recession and mm -hmm. never recovered. I get that. But when you support this person, that meant unequivocally that there are going to be things put in place that you are willing to ignore mm -hmm. for the sake of you gaining a sense of personal well-being. And that, I think, is unfair, that you in trying to make yourself right are very okay with wronging mm -hmm. other people you know it's the classic rugged individualism yeah. that exists within this country and globally that i have a hard time embracing and the really bad news doctor i call you know black folks who are doctor doctor mm -hmm. because that's just I'd love to do that. Because yeah, I just love it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I struggled with that. I was like, what am I supposed to be called now? Am I, can, you know, I like. You know, I, Dr. Kent, because again, you know, only black person, you know, in my family, a person mm -hmm. in my family to do yeah. the doctor thing. And, you know, coming from Howard, you know, it's people who known each other 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. Each other. I, I, I think it's a that. black cultural norm. I, I it's like, it. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I will always be that to you. Everybody's <laughs> in my phone as doctors. So, yes. so. But when yes. it came to me, though, I felt like, do I get to, you know, like, yeah, no, people were like asking me, like, what should I call you now? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you and, know? and not not necessarily with family. I no, not family. Break, you know? Like, outside of that, in mm -hmm. these sort of academic circles, yeah. You, you, and you don't have, I don't yeah. enforce it, but I know that I provide that respect by giving that respect, you know, to the persons who mm -hmm. have earned a degree. But what I was going to say was the problem that I have is with the most, it's, the question was people that I have a hard time embracing are the persons who look like me who embrace that type of mentality. Mm. You know, being from Internalized depression. Well, well, yeah, that manifests itself through rage and eventual homicide, mm. you know, so, you know. I have family in Chicago. My entire family is in Chicago. My wife's entire family is in mm -hmm. Chicago. Like generations of people, yeah. all of them situated in these parts of Chicago where people die. Yep. And so while I love who we are as an entity, I love the blackness that comes with that. I can't forego or ignore a lot of the sort of undiagnosed emotional and psychological trauma and mental illness that exists within yeah. our people. Mm -hmm. And so I have a hard time embracing, you know, those individuals who need the help 
but just flat out don't look like they deserve it when they pull a trigger. Mm-hmm. And so, and while they do, because the pulling of the trigger is something very aligned with the symptom. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's directly a yeah. symptom, but it's something directly aligned with it. I still feel like at our very rudimentary level as living beings, we understand the importance of survival. Mm. We are all afraid of death because it's our unknown. And so pulling a trigger and knowing the consequence, which is death, should right in that moment give you a sense of morality. The integrity is tied to whether or not it's right or wrong. And if you pull a trigger, somebody dies, and therefore it was wrong, and that person has died and it's final, and you're afraid of it, then you know not to do it. Mm. But when you do it, that tells me that there was intention there. And so if you intend to take lives, I don't know if I should be focusing on assisting you as much. And so I have a hard time dealing with that. You know, that's, I call myself, you know, liberally conservative Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. because there are times with my own people that I'm saying, y'all know that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't care what happens. And this is me and my privilege, you know, two parent household, 44 years. So I don't know what they go through, but at the very basic level, I know like they know the value of life. And therefore, I know like they know, or at least I'm imposing that mm-hmm. I, you know, I think they know what it means to take it I think and how wrong that is. I was, so I got asked to speak about a young woman named Brisha who shot her father for abusing her and her mother and killed him. And at that moment, you were saying that I hadn't even heard of the story, but she's in jail. I hadn't even heard of the story, and I think about what you gave as the context of your privilege having what sounds like a loving, healthy home. And at the end of the day, you get to come back to that every time. Like, hey, okay, there's a world out there, but this base feels like, all right, cool. We we are right in here. But then when that environment's toxic too, yeah. in addition to the world, you, I don't know if you do think that's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. You think, I need to survive. And this person needs to die in order for me to survive. Mm-hmm. So it's still that survival mechanism. Yeah. That's the way I understand it. Because I still feel similar to you, but on the counseling side, understand sure. it from that, like, you know, okay, well, you know, maybe you needed to die that day. I don't know. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, and, and I hear that, and that's why I said that's that's my privilege speaking. But again, I and again, this is where the philosophy side of it comes in because I'm still thinking, even in survival, we're talking about the individuals who actually get shot mm-hmm. because it's not the wild wild west anymore. There are no guns, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no gun mm-hmm. war. You know, bullets fly. No, it's literally you walk up to somebody, do you shoot? And again, it's all revenge oriented. It's all linked to you know vindication and. I was going to say that's cool. It's not cool, but it is what it is, right? But in those moments, I think there's still an option to just walk away. I agree with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because in that situation, it's a toxic environment, but you're still decision-making within that environment. Nobody's shooting abusive grandmamas in Chicago, <laughs> you know, or fathers, or I don't know, the Brisha story might have mm-hmm. been in Chicago, I don't know, but it seems like the stuff that I read has a whole bunch of innocent bystanders in my in my head. Gotcha. 
I always think, why don't y'all just get better aid? Because I get it. Y'all are at war. This is war. But you're taking out so many people who are now casualties of war that had nothing to do with it. And so I'm kind of like, the pulling of the trigger of the person who has wronged you, I guess that's okay. I'm not I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying I I can empathize. I would never be like, no, do that. You know, that's not... For me, I would rather die for a movement than kill for it. That's where I am. Like, even if it was the most righteous reason to kill, I would rather just go on and die. Mm -hmm. But my empathy for it is like, "Mm." in this situation, in this context, do I understand how it happened Mm. so that I can treat it? You know what I mean? And I wonder if that's gendered. Mm. Because I have these conversations Mm -hmm. with my wife and... She hears me, mm-hmm. but like you, has a different yeah. approach to it. And as a mother now, mm-hmm. she would have to have that. Not have to. Because yeah. I'm a dad, too, but I didn't carry life. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And so the the full understanding and valuing of life can only be given to mothers. So that even when they're talking about resolutions to issues such as Chicago gang warfare, the last thing on the agenda is okaying the taking of life. Yeah. And I hear that. Mm-hmm. And so men get to say, y'all go shoot, shoot each other. Go to yeah. you know, <laughs> feel and have it up. And I wonder, if, you know, like we're talking, like, is it gendered for me to think that, but for you to think that should never be a solution? Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming yeah. that you're not a mom. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if that is correct, then it's not even about parental status. Mm-hmm. It's about gender. It's mm-hmm. about your ability to give life, even if you haven't given it, and therefore knowing that there's a importance attached to it that I might not have because I don't have the ability to give life as a woman. But does. I understood you saying that that life is important and it breaks your heart and it makes it hard to love people who take it because life is so important. Sure. So I didn't hear you saying, "Well, shoot, this isn't." Until you just said it, I didn't hear you saying, "Well, y'all go kill each other." Mm-hmm. I heard you saying, "How dare you take." somebody's life sure you know what yeah. i mean and I, that's what yeah. i'm saying i wasn't mm-hmm. saying it's okay to yeah. do i'm saying there's still decisions being made that aren't final i'm saying that there's still opportunities and, and i guess that's part of my experience too and i'm imposing that I, I get to say that yeah i didn't have the best life but then someone will look at it it's like you kind of did and i have mm-hmm. to acknowledge that i did you know a lot of the things i went through were personalized and minor social you know, interruptions and eruptions and that sort of thing. But I'm like, I got through it. That might not be somebody else's reality, but there were still decisions that have to be made. Mm -hmm. And never once did I think about making a decision that would harm somebody, Mm -hmm. even with the personal harm that I received. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's part of our human experience, that I, I want persons like to have a greater appreciation of. You know, a couple of years ago, you know, some kid lured into an alley and got shot. And he was a son of a gangbanger. You know, nobody says gangbanger anymore, but a son of a gangster or whatever. And so at that point, the father knew what it felt like, even though he was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why did it take my child to be victimized yeah. in order for me to know that? And it's kind of like, but you did it. Mm-hmm. And so now that you know how it feels, you want empathy. And you should have it because that would be really terrible, you know, for something like that to happen. But that's the value of it. And so you know that value even before you take somebody's Mm -hmm. life. 
So that you took it implies intentionality. Gotcha. And that's what I'm saying ought to be re ought to be reexamined. Mm-hmm. I get that. So last question. I'm sorry, I'm talking crazy. No, this <laughs> this is all important. That's why it builds into this larger narrative of how to love a human. A, a large part of it is be unwilling to take a human's life. You know, regardless of how terrified you feel or victimized you feel. You know, I get that mm-hmm. totally. But the last question is, what do you love most about you? I like my articulation. I like my ability to express myself. I I like to write. I think I like to talk a little bit. More than write? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Writing, I get to clean up the mistakes you know, talking not so much and, you know, making the mistakes goes back to the one of the first things I said, which is, you know, how to deal with, you know, the pursuit of the mm-hmm. better me. But um, what I love about myself is I have a drive to persistently become better. I just don't want to be in the process of, of ignoring, you know, from where I came and, you know, how what my progress has been to date. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, you know, the double-edged swords. <laughs> the more technologically advanced we become, the less need for human capital. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's a, you know, a double-edged sword. It's catch-22. And so I want to, I think that implies uh, applies to me personally. I, I want to strive to become better, but I want to eventually get to the point where I ex- accept myself mm-hmm. for who and what I am. I have a hard time. If you were talking to my mm-hmm. wife, she would be able to tell you ad nauseum, you know, just the problems that I think I have. You're hard so, on yourself. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. terribly. Like, mm-hmm. And as a result, I put myself through things, strenuous physical things to, you know, ward off, you know, these feelings of ineptitude and, you know, like physical constraints and mm-hmm. that sort of thing and so yeah I love that I love who I am intellectually and I struggle with who I am physically and I try to fix that every day for two to three hours a day mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's hard you know because I'm getting older and you know I'm not who I used to be and so I have to accept that I might not ever be there again mm-hmm. but I do that knowing that in those areas where I struggle, there are areas that I do really good stuff in. Mm-hmm. You know, the things I've done, a couple of things, one or two things I've done within the department, but the fact that they are associated with me off of, you know, literally a brainstorm, mm-hmm. a general idea that led to we now having a different, broader, more informed identity, a collective one even. I feel good about that because all of that is a function of my articulation of what I'm feeling, what I thought about, you know, how those mesh, you know, and therefore acknowledging that they're both important, but then what we get to do about it. Absolutely. So I I love the fact that I, I express well, uh, that I can. In the written form, in the verbal form, and then it just. It matters to you to be able to communicate what's going on in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like my ability to communicate 
to talk to people to have a variety of audiences and a variety of social settings that I will fit well in so long as they are, you know, mostly academic in nature, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, sporting events and all of that, like, I'll pay attention and if I care enough, I'll read up on a couple of plays yeah. and get a sense of what's going on, but that's never been who I am, you know, I gravitated towards it because of my 13-year-old, you know, who's a football player and track star, so I, I gotta know, I yeah. wanna be able to talk with him about these things and I don't wanna say, it's not who I am, mm -hmm. I gotta make it who I am if I want to make sure that we are where we need to be, gotcha. which is, you know, communicating and learning of one another, but that's, that's part of my, part of the goodness of me that, you know, I'm willing to immerse myself in whatever I need to immerse myself in to make sure that I'm in a place where I can communicate, where I can mm -hmm. talk, where I can be heard, where I can articulate to people about things that I care about and to get them to care about it too. Yeah. So I, I think I'm pretty good. at I, I love that about me. I like that I'm, that I, I'm a good talker. Gotcha. <laughs> And it doesn't stop at talk. Oh, as soon as you said that, I meant to say good communicator. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like my academic writing is studies for the most part. But then when I, you know, I, I wrote that book a couple of years ago, it's like that was my voice. And what book is it? It's uh, <laughs> oh, uh, identity in African American men. It's at um, Lexington Books, which is a printing house of uh, Roman and Littlefield came out in 2004 and it's talking about the multi-identity components of African-American men and you know, the preface for the book is situated in a Trayvon Martin incident mm -hmm. which was you know the reason that he got followed and eventually killed because he was seen as a bi-dimensional individual mm -hmm. that is he fit the stereotypes or the known information about him even though it was literally a caricature of what he was. Mm -hmm. Who he was as a young black man was much more involved than what he was reduced to at the time of the incident. And so the book was written to give people an idea of the complexities of black mm -hmm. male existence. Mm -hmm. You know, and to that end, you know, it uses a lot of social science literature to reinforce the existence of eight or possible nine identity components that exist within African-American men. So it's academic, athletic, it's gender, it's sexual, it's um, racial, it's cultural, ethnic, and then there's also one socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. which I think sets the tone for how we view the world. And then one that I call color identity, because I think that that sets the tone for how we are embraced within this world as well. And that's just nine, mm -hmm. you know, just, and talking about how those might intersect with one another. And again, the goal was to get people to think differently about who and what black men are, mm -hmm. because thinking in this sort of reductionistic sort of way about our existence gets us killed yep and so the goal is to have you think about us being broader rather than narrow when it comes to not only our existence but how you get to know that existence and even interact with it fully human yeah well i think that's a good place to end <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate you being on thank you so much well, thank you i'm glad i got a chance to out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. To connect and contribute, go to howtolovehuman.com.